Welcome to The Black Athlete, a podcast where we put the past into the present of black sports. I'm Lewis Moore. I'm Derek White. We're sports historians here to give you the historical context for contemporary black athletes. And welcome back to The Black Athlete. I'm Lewis Moore, author of I Fight for a Living, and we will we will win the day. And you can check out my Audible on Amazon about the African-American athlete. And we will win the day. We'll be coming out on paperback in November with a new Ford and a new cover. I'm Derek White, author of The Challenge of Blackness, as well as Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Jake Gaither, Florida A&M, and the History of Black College Football. Welcome back, Lou. You forgot to say, I'm just going to, I'm, I'm going to just gonna forgot to say that your, your new paperback copy of We Will Win the Day is coming out on the University Press of Kentucky. Uh, and in the new series on race and sports, uh, co-edited by yours truly this is talking about how everybody gets to eat uh keeping it in the family that's right that's right uh, gang gang the new gatekeepers <laughs> <laughs> we thought we wasn't when we was no, i'm just kidding we're just kidding we're not gonna be gatekeepers but anyway we got an edited series coming out what next month in the journal african-american history um yeah on so it's gonna be really good we got a lot of really good uh young writers um doing some good pieces or young historians i should say doing some really good pieces on uh the you know the i guess the black athlete or sports uh in general so i'm really excited about that yeah and we and and our goal is uh as as we get closer to to the official pub date for uh, our special issue of the Journal of African-American History is to have those folks on. Some of those folks have been on this podcast before, um, but we're going to have them on uh, to talk about their their articles, um, talk about their interest in sports, how they got into the topic, and do some really kind of background. They really pub uh, this special issue of uh, the Journal of African-American History, which I think, you know, and this is not and this is not me just bragging on the fact that we, we are the co-editors, but I do think this marks an important kind of transition uh, in really establishing the field of African American sports history, whereas I think um, one of the big arguments that I think we're trying to put forth, as well as some of our co-authors uh, in this series, is is really suggesting that uh, you know African American uh, African Americans in sports or uh, race in sports have been um, an ill, often ill-fitted inside of sports history for a number of reasons. Um, and one of the things that I know our work is trying to do and what this podcast is trying to do is really try to link, make sure that understand that sports history is not separate from African-American history and making sure that we draw those connections. Uh, and I think that really is um, our strength. And I think that um, these young authors uh, who are in this piece and coming up behind us and some of them, some of them are veterans um, who, who paid the way for us. Um, I've really done a really good job of, of really um, situating African-American sports history and really kind of establishing the field. And I think that we moved beyond kind of the first, you know, race of, you know, who was the first uh, and we moved beyond, uh, uh, you know, uh, I think our, I, I think traditional integrationist narratives uh, and we're really trying to complicate and, and really building on a lot of the insights that our colleagues in African-American history who've done award-winning books over the last 20 years have really, really transformed uh, American history. Uh, and we're really bringing that to the sports world or sports history world. And so I'm excited about our, uh, our, our, our special issue. I'm super excited for folks to see the cover. I won't spoil it here. Oh yeah. But, but, but the, next, oh. the cover's dope. And, uh, 
and and for me, uh, it's personally dope. So I, I really like it. Uh, I'm not on the cover, but I, I really, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, but I really love it. Um, it's been a minute, dude. We, I, I checked the date. It's been like six weeks since we, uh, um, uh, did our podcast and this is what happened. So I'm going to say this on the air. Uh, if you would like to sponsor this podcast, uh, <laughs> in, in, in real ways, we can do it far more regularly, but life has really gotten in the way over these last, uh, you know, several weeks as, uh, your kids have finished up basketball and moved into new sports and my kids have are in uh playing soccer and then just you know i got papers to grade and that's just not oh my gosh. The, oh we, like God. three weeks ago it was midterms and now we're at the end of the <laughs> semester so and i'm still behind on my grading i've been telling him for about a month i'm done like i'm just like i'm done done and i think we got like one more week and so now it's like when you have like, so this is the last week and then the next week is finals and I'm not really giving, I'm, you know, we have to have a culminating experience and, and I'm just like, student, the kids have been, you know, 16 weeks in a pandemic, you know, in the middle of winter and just taking five other classes. So I'm going to give them a final, but it's not going to be like hard, hard final. It's going to assess what they've been paying, you know, they've been paying attention and stuff, but you know, it's that, it's that week when you get emails about stuff that could have been handled eight weeks ago and you're just like man like this is this is something we got to work on here uh but you know i won't i won't complain it's i uh it's been good it's been i get up in the morning i, I do my modules I, I take my kids to school uh they're they're uh, they're all in the track program so my oldest is doing track for the first time she's seventh grade and i got two third graders who are doing doing track and so we'll see she the oldest has chosen uh the hurdles uh ah. the high jump and the long jump and i hope some kind of run you know but i told her you know look and i gotta prepare myself too mm-hmm. that middle school hurdlers is gonna be a lot of stutter step i'm like look you're just gonna try to jump over it but you know it's not gonna hurt and the hurdle will knock down when you touch it so so maybe this weekend i'm gonna go to a local track because it's it's the best time best thing about track season is that when you go to a local track there's like equipment out yeah you know, they don't put the hurdles away uh, you just hope that nobody steals them or breaks them and so yeah yeah we're gonna lower those bad boys down and and try to see if she can get her lead leg and trail leg um and then maybe give her a little advantage but i'm excited i'm excited um you know uh to see her i know my third grade my boys is gonna pop he, he's got he's got ups um he's stunt like his daddy um and then we'll see <laughs> we'll see my third grade girl that she's just she's a decent she just has fun and that's the funnest part about it she just makes friends she's just there to make friends and have fun and she's a she's a good enough athlete um so it's so it's gonna be it's gonna be good so uh since your since your daughter's running hurdles it made me think about my favorite one of my favorite students uh from my previous institution at dartmouth college uh, who I had since she was a freshman, Shamia Rothwell, who is, uh, I think she owns every single sprint and hurdle record uh, at, at Dartmouth. Uh, but when the pandemic came, uh, she transferred to Duke. Uh, and this is the best thing. Uh, in her first race at Duke, uh, she sent a, uh, she set a school record in the hurdles and, uh, and and I'm you know let me get it right because I don't want to I want to I don't even want to do it right she the tenth fastest time in the country uh, this uh, oh no they did the tenth fastest time in the four by one hundred uh, relay 
uh, and Shamia has been killing it in the hurdles as well. I'm trying to find her stats here. You know, it's hard to find yeah, these. Shit. But where you're oh, at right no, now? Tab- oh, oh, go ahead. oh, she got the personal record. Yeah, she did it. 13, uh, 1309. Yes, for Duke? personal record for, for Duke. Yeah, she's she bring, she, she bringing, she bringing the fire. Right. And where you're at right now, Kentucky's a great school for women's hurdlers, right? Um, yeah. You have the, the short, the 110 meter hurdlers, but then, oh gosh, what's her name? Who's going to win a gold medal when, if they ever have Olympics again? Yeah, since she'll, she'll win gold in what, the four? Was four yeah. hurdles. Yeah, yeah. She uh, just won she, like three she's records. Like, 20, like twenty one, right? Like, yeah, she she did not. Uh, she she has gone professional. Uh, she right. left early here at the year because she was. Yeah, that's she, that was she, a given. She, yeah, yeah. No, she was she was amazing. But um, can I say this before we move on to more serious stuff? Like, yeah, honestly, like I'm not going to Kentucky if that's my freshman. <laughs> if I'm no, I'm one of done track. Like and I'm a superstar. I'm like heading to USC. Like I don't, I get that Kentucky's like the hurdle program, but I'm heading. I'm heading to like USC and just living that don't Hollywood hate. lifestyle. Don't, don't hate. I mean, like I don't want to hate. <laughs> it is hate, but hate, hate, hate. Like, like where else? Like I don't. Like I get it. It's a it's a it's a hurling school, but I'm going to USC. You know, I'm just if I gotta if I gotta be honest. If I'm running track and I and I I got my druthers to pick anywhere I want. I don't. I don't know what USC. you're talking about. I, I do want to shout out my 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 son. Uh, both my sons are playing soccer this term, and uh, uh, my oldest is uh, is a, a defensive midfielder who has held down his team for two victories. My youngest um, uh, is uh, he, he might be the chosen one of this family. Uh, he Ooh. scored six goals in his first game Ooh. out. Um, and so we'll see how if he can keep it up. Uh, <laughs> we'll see. And, Cause I seen uh, what's that show? Uh, Blackish when uh, little, little Jack was good at basketball, and all of a sudden they brought little Jack to the city. And he was exactly he good at basketball no more. So, so uh, we'll see, we'll see. But then he's also playing flag football, and uh, the first week was terrible. He did not like it, and so we had to convince him to go back. Uh, and then the second week, he uh, took the first toss because that's all they do at that age toss took it to the house on the first play of the game and he loves it so you know he's back he's back yeah. loving it now like Did he, he uh do it he got a, it. a dance like rudy like the, nah, rudy i don't know I, like oh yeah yeah uh, the yeah. rudy yeah no he wasn't yeah. he, he, that's a little before his age and uh the reruns are, are harder to find in uh syndication these days yeah <laughs> i wonder <laughs> wonder why but yes yes yeah that was one of the gosh it's a great – that was one of the great episodes when Rudy was playing running back. So for the listeners don't know, we're talking about the Cosby show, uh, and we're only talking about Rudy. Um, <laughs> exactly. But, but I want to ask you this since we're here. Um, usually you, you're the host, but um, this is in your wheelhouse. So today, Isa Texas is back in the news, and it's even dumber than last time because – they 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 came out and said if if I have this correct that the football players aren't required. This is a, again this is a public school. Football cars aren't players aren't required to sing the Eyes of Texas, but the band members are. But if you don't want to, there'll be like a separate band or something. It's like a like I tweeted out. It's like separate but equal. And I because my thing is like this is a public school. You can't really make people like play this song. And it and it seems like they understand that. Um, but it, they created this kind of very, they, I, we said this last time on the podcast, like, I don't get why they're so into keeping Jim Crow t- traditions. Like, I just don't get it. 
um, why they're willing to fight for it and why they're willing to uh, embarrass themselves. But you are the expert, right? You've written a piece on the Dixie song. Um, you're a big college football guy. So please help me out here. Yeah, I, I don't know. I actually, it, you know, it's funny. Like, I don't understand why. I mean, I do understand, right? Because like part of this is 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 this, our particular politics of this moment is fraught with um, uh, uh, over, these are, these are just proxy wars for race, right? Like, I think that that's the other part, right? Like, we're not having a proxy war about integration, but we have a proxy war that allows for these Southern institutions to hold on to their segregationist traditions, right? And I think that's what, that's what, that's what Texas has decided, right? Because in truth, like a gang of white alums who are, uh, have a lot of money as boosters have decided that that was more important than, you know, the black players and students at the University of Texas. And I think one of the things that gets lost in this discussion is that it pretends that black folks are not part of Texas. Right. Right. Like, right. like, 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 it's like they, like black people don't have a stake in the South. It's like when we talk about the South, like, oh, the South, this, the South, you really talk about the white South. You're not talking about like, I'm from the South too, right? Like, you know, black folks is from the South just as much as white folks. And we got a very different read on an interpretation of what's happening. And so I think that part of what this is. And so, it, you know, I, I had this thing I wanted to write, but as I said, like the same reason I haven't uh, graded efficiently or done this podcast efficiently <laughs> since, since March is um, this idea. I wrote an article in 2010. Oh, God, so it's like a long time ago. I'm going to make sure. Yeah, 2010 <laughs> about Dixie, uh, the song Dixie and, and at the University of Florida in particular. And one of the things that I, I, I you know, I had, I, I was, you know, I want to shout out my colleague and friend, uh, Paul Ortiz at the University of Florida, who is the director of the, the uh, Samuel Proctor Oral History Program. Uh, and so down there, like in 09, I think I got an opportunity to, to go on fellowship. And I was reading through these oral histories and the student newspapers, and I stumbled across this huge debate about whether or not the University of Florida should play Dixie. Uh, and, and that opened up a world cause you know, we, we typically think about sports history as the stuff that happens between the players and the coaches and in between the lines and the gentleman's agreement and all this other stuff. And I was actually intrigued more about the fact that the band signifies, signals the, signifies the culture of the institution, right? That the players could be desegregated, but the culture of the institution is maintaining these segregationist ideals. And so to me, the idea of constantly playing Dixie, even after your team was integrated, was uh, uh, signaled that this that, that integration or desegregation was not the same as integration. So I made this argument. And one of the things that's really clear is that as more and more Black players get on the program, uh, get into the program at Florida, but also across the South that schools kind of slowly begin to stop playing Dixie. It's, you know, it becomes, and Dixie's an interesting song because it's not just, it's like a pep song, you know, when it's played fast, it's like the alma mater when it's played slow, like it, it's, it functions in many ways as for all these Southern schools, especially when they're in intersectional contests against Northern teams, it functions as the kind of call to arms, uh, of the South, um, of the Civil War. And one of the things that, that, that I was able to kind of research is that these schools slowly behind the scenes begin to, to get rid of Dixie. And so, uh, in, uh, 
Florida plays it for a little bit longer. Miami actually gets rid of it pretty early. The president says, like, we're no longer playing Dixie because, like, we got he's like, we got people, students from all over the country and from Latin America and South America. Like, why are we playing Dixie? Um, and Florida is, is much more Southern in its ethos. And so it was held on to this idea much longer. And so it reminded me, this Eyes of Texas story reminded me of, of the same kind of debate and fervor around whether or not schools should continue to play Dixie. And the truth is, the fact of the matter is that all those schools, with the exception of Ole Miss, which kept some version of Dixie until like, I want to say like five or six years ago, right, um, um, uh, got rid of Dixie as part of the program, right? Um, LSU got rid of Dixie. Georgia got rid of Dixie. Um, I found a story at Western Kentucky that uh, Jim McDaniels in 1977, uh, not 70, like uh, when he was a freshman in 67, 68, uh, was like, I'm not playing in the freshman team if y'all keep playing Dixie, right? Like, like black athletes were very much part and parcel of pushing their presence and, and, and their voice were very much part and parcel of pushing the end of playing Dixie. And so it makes no sense that Texas in 2021, one of the top institutions in the country, extremely diverse, one of the great black studies departments in America is continuing to, to push this. And then they're going to double down on it by saying we're going to have a segregated <laughs> a separate but equal band. Like yeah. none of this makes any sense. Like it is not worth all that. And the truth of the matter is those alums who will be mad if they start winning games, they'll give money again because they want to be around winners. That's it. No, you're, you're, you're right. No, nah, I got, I got nothing. I got nothing to add. It's just, again, it's one of those things, right. Where, where they just want to keep holding on. Like you said, it's their little proxy wars. They don't, this is, this is what, this is what they got, man. They're not, it's, it's um it's like how I explain sometimes when I when I teach um, 1947 Harvard has one black player right Chet Pierce and they go to Virginia and it's a big deal right because the Virginia white players like yeah we'll play against this one guy and it's like what you read about is like everyone's like yeah this is a big deal but then what you read and I've written this before in the stands there's more Confederate flags than American flags right there's mm-hmm. uh, the Confederate monuments all over, right? And if we fast forward seventy years later, right? That's this is the place where you have Charlottesville, right? Like this is it, and mm-hmm. that's the same thing with with Eyes of Texas. Like the monuments of Jim Crow don't come down, right? And I think that's very symbolic, and that's the problem. They're not willing to to get rid of the flag. They're not willing to get rid of the statues. And here for them, they're not willing to get rid of this song that everybody knows it is like it's the marrow of its tradition is Jim Crow. Right. And they just won't um, get rid of it. And and you're always going to have a problem as, as we move forward, because this is a different, different time, man. People, people are, are ready to, to, and, and college, I should say college campus, they've always been ready to pick these fights, but now it's like these, these local college campus fights become part of, like this broader community, the way social media works, right? And you'll always get people are always going to be on you for this. So you might as well just just find a new song. Like like at least the state where Bun B is at. Like go go get Bun B. Come on, have I, I want I will write you a, a song. I'm going to say this real quick, and this is going to be disrespectful to to one of the great historically black colleges in America, but. Because because there's no way the Texas ban, I'm going to just say this with pure, pure just assertiveness and assuredness. 
Uh, there's no way the Texas band can pull off what the Tuskegee Pied Pipers can do. <laughs> but Tuskegee has uh, has been playing for a number, at least a decade, Ball and Parlay, which is by Big Pokey from Houston. They like you got that as an option. <laughs> that song slaps. I'm gonna just say that when I was finishing, for folks who were listening, when I was finishing Blood, Sweat, and Tears, like I had certain kind of uh, HBCU, like you, you know this, Lou. Sometimes you just need all the inspiration you could get right. to try to finish the book. And so I, there were days I had the YouTube on the HBCU bands. I had Jackson State. I had FAMU. I had Tuskegee. I had A and T playing. Uh, you know, uh, playing Hey, right? Like I had uh, Southern playing Neck, right? Like I had FAMU playing SOS. But the one that got me through was Tuskegee was playing ball and parlay. And I'm like, Texas, you know that y'all, like all these white schools have been stealing the the band, the playlist from HBCUs. Steal this. <laughs> I'm telling you, steal ball and parlay. One, it's a better song. Let's just be honest, right? Like it's, it, it slaps. And so for my for our listeners, I highly recommend you go on YouTube, look up to Tuskegee University Band. Uh, and, and look up Ball and Parlay, your life will be better for it. Because I will tell you, uh, and and since LSU has already stolen neck from Southern, uh, uh, Texas, your best plan is to yeah. plagiarize uh, <laughs> is to plagiarize Tuskegee and Ball and Parlay, and your student body will be better for it, and you will not have this controversy. Uh, and trust me, uh, it... it the song slaps too. That's the other part. Like the, the eyes of Texas ain't even that good of a song. Like, I don't understand why they fight over yeah. a song that don't even like, don't even hit. Like, See, I don't it's understand. It's the last thing they got. Um, let me, let me, let me switch gears or I guess not really switch gears. This is why HBCUs, Eddie George. Thoughts. Yeah. What are your thoughts? Um, <laughs> uh, let me see. How can I be? I don't know. I don't be honest. know. No, I, well, look, I'll say this. I, Eddie George has not been a, head, a coach at any level, as far as I could tell. Um, um, he is uh, a very big name in the Nashville area. Obviously, he's a Heisman Trophy winner from Ohio State. Played for the Tennessee Titans. Um, I, I, I'm appreciative that these these um, uh, great college stars, whether it's Dion or, or even uh, Eddie George, are interested in HBCU opportunities as coaches. Right. So I'm, I'm not saying that they shouldn't be able to leverage their experience because the truth of the matter is I watch like a whole bunch of young white coaches get NFL jobs with little to no experience. Right. So this is not a thing. Um, the, uh, interesting part is I don't know, you know, college football is hard. Like it's not the pro game in some ways it's hard because the recruiting is hard. Um, it's you, you know, guys are recruiting programs are recruiting three years out. They recruit, they're looking at freshmen right now and identifying and and if you've not been in that you've been recruited but haven't done recruiting it's all about the network and so i think there's this 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 belief that name recognition is going to open some doors 
but name recognition alone don't get it done. Uh, and so I wish I, you know, I think it's a good, uh, you know, it's an opportunity. Um, he's hired Jeff Fisher. Did you hear this? Like Jeff Fisher has got a. So they're going, what are they going? What are you, what are they going six and six this year? Or like, what <laughs> they're going, if Jeff Fisher's involved, they, they go six, six and six and sitting down they're the black six quarterback. And, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> six and six. Um, and not running with their black quarterback. Like, <laughs> what are they going to do? Right. <laughs> they're going to almost make it. Um, yeah. No. Uh, so, I, you know, I think he'll be good. I think, I think Dion is a good cautionary tale right that like when we we were on the pod last time eight weeks ago there was a lot of hype and excitement about Deion sanders at jackson state he started off three and oh i think or four and oh uh and then they they've hit the kind of gauntlet of the schedule uh and i think they fall into four and four or three and three something like that uh and they lost like multiple games in a row and i and i think that what Dion is experienced and is every coach experience right you know winning college football games and 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 running a college football program is is a difficult entity, uh, and you can't just do it on personality alone. That that there's some of it is about coaching, a lot of it's about recruiting. You know, some of it's about Jimmys and Joes and not X's and O's. Uh, and so you can't just use your port your force of personality. Um, I, I will note that like they played Alabama A and M the other week, uh, and and Jackson State supposedly have all these guys on defense who are. Um, you know, got potential for the NFL and AM and their quarterback who's gonna, I think, gotta gonna have a good shot at the NFL in a couple of years, lit them up for like he threw for like six touchdowns and four hundred and fifty yards and they won, you know, they scored like fifty points. You know, it was bad. It was bad. Little, what know? is the a little Willie Totten on them? A little Parnell Dickinson? Little, little <laughs> look at Willie? you. Look. Like, I'm just naming the black quarterbacks from from the HBCUs. But speaking of Tennessee State, I mean, that's the thing. I think it's 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 an opportunity. I th- when you get these coaches, what you're signaling is too is like it's an opportunity to fund, right? Like these programs run on 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 funding, and I think George could bring in maybe some extra dollars, right? Um, the other thing is that it's a storied program. It's one of the best from you know it's like out of all colleges, right? It's mm-hmm. one of the it's one of the best post World War II programs. From I mean, in, you know, integration, you know hurts it eventually but mm-hmm. we're talking about like really good i mean we I, I don't know if we mentioned this before but when uh joe gillum senior was the coordinator and, and perhaps he's the he might be the greatest d coordinator in the history of sports right like like <laughs> yeah no he had a stretch it was crazy he was putting out back to back one time he put out back to back whole secondaries into the nfl right we're talking about Quarterbacks like Eldridge Dickey and Joe Gilliam, you're you're talking about great, 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 all-time great players that just, you know, flooded NFL rosters. And then, you know, life hits you. You know, they don't yeah. I think what by the I think they, they do go they move up to the big time, right? In 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 late seventies, early eighties, but just by that time, just the lack of TV money and and I think the the increase in integration in the South just gets to them, right? You can get away with it when it's only Conjures Holloway going to Tennessee, right? Mm-hmm. Once they're all going you know, to Tennessee and then maybe Vanderbilt or whatever, or even Western Kentucky, then you're, you know, you're going to, you're going to eventually lose out. So maybe George and, and, and prime time will, will show, you know, young students that you know, this is a place, but you know, to do that, to compete, you got to have the facilities, right? And the way you get the facilities is you got to have a coach like Eddie George who could bring in that mo- that Nashville money, right? 
Mm-hmm. Nashville's net, the city of Nashville's got deep pockets, right? Yeah. Um, and and so maybe he's getting some of that outside that outside money. And and if that's the case, right? If you get opportunity to 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 improve your facilities, um, you know, maybe bring a name guy or two in, um, then I think it's worth it. Um, even though he's never coached, right? And that's the that's the sad part because I bet you there's a lot of guys who deserve who who you know a lot of young black coaches who could you know use who an opportunity coach. who could coach and use an opportunity like that. Um, yeah, and, and I hope a lot of guys would see that as an opportunity too. Maybe sometimes they don't, right? I think that was always for some guys going HBC route, right? The guys who who had visions of moving up the ladder. Mm-hmm. You know, when we're getting into the you know seventies and eighties. They knew if they go that route, they're done, right? There was no getting back out of there. So hopefully, you know, you got Dion, you got Eddie George. Maybe this becomes an attractive place for that young black coach who's trying to move up the ladder. Yeah, and I think that, you know, one of the things that's interesting to watch is is a lot of what I think Dion has done. We talked about this in, in a pod earlier this year, that Dion is attracting a lot of media attention to Jackson State and that, you know, people who, you know, these young people are not familiar with Jackson State or Tennessee State or FAMU's history, right? Like, this is one of the reasons I wrote a book on FAMU's history is that, like, dude, you know, people who are in Florida don't even know that that FAMU was, like, the the space, right? I get I get angry every time I hear people talk about the U and they talk about, you know, uh, Howard Stellenberger, who recently passed away, who in some ways was a real uh, a pioneer in integrating uh, college sports, right? Because Howard Stellenberger was fully willing to go into the worst neighborhoods in Miami and recruit black players and didn't care about like, you know, and, and wanted them on his roster, right? But that's a product of integration, right? Like that that the opportunity for, for Howard Stellenberger to create the U that wins that first national title that that's only possible because FAMU has already been weakened by integration, right? So they, like that can't be separated from that process. In fact, in I you know the I opened my book with with Snellenberger losing to and Miami you losing to Florida A and M, right? Where Vince Coleman, who at one point was Rookie of the Year in Major League Baseball, back uh, when baseball was baseball. When, when back when people stole 100 bases a year, right, right. Coleman kicked the game-winning field goal. He's a, he's uh, a firecracker. No, I'm just kidding. I should have yeah. said that. I should have said that. I should have said that. Apologize to that kid. Uh, but, you know, but, like, that's what we're talking about. So, I, you know, I think that's important for them. And I think that um, uh, Dion has definitely gotten that uh, attention back to Jackson State is one of the proud and, and historic programs in HBCU football. And Tennessee State is that. I, I just want for our listeners to know, because I, I think we, you know, that you talked about this this run. I just want to give a little, yes, do just it. give a little clue, because I, I think, you know, they don't remember that uh, Ed Tutal Jones, who uh, was the first pick overall uh, in Too 1974. Tall. Right. Claude Humphreys was the number one, the the third pick in 1968. He's in the NFL Hall of Fame. Uh, Jim Marsalis was drafted in the first round by the Chiefs uh, in 1969. He was the 23rd pick. Eldridge, the Lord's Prayer Dickey, was drafted in the first round as a quarterback by the Raiders. Black and quarterback. Misused, no, sorry. And misused. We ain't going to talk misused, about that. Right? Yeah. And misused. Right. Um who else we got on here uh, that came out of that era? Uh, let's see. 
I'm trying to find a good person that people might not may remember. Oh, Wayman Bryant was drafted in the with the fourth pick in 1974. He was a off as a linebacker uh by the Chicago Bears, right? So we're talking about like that that Tennessee State year in, year out at uh was putting in real kind of uh of players that were getting drafted in the mid to 70s. I talk I say this line in the book that like that integration destroyed Florida A and M, and it was really stark. Like Gaither retires, the integration comes, and the program goes into the dumps for like six years. Um, but the two programs that really navigated those kind of choppy waters the best were Grambling and Eddie Robinson down in, in Louisiana, and 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 John Merritt at Tennessee State. Uh, and, and so Tennessee State was one of the programs. And you talked about Joe Gillum's that he was able to. To, to really to craft offenses and defenses that were electric in the 1970s, right? right? And, I think that that's, show, and so I think that's part of uh, of that legacy. And so that's I I just hope that Eddie George is fully aware of the history and legacy of Tennessee State, right? And I, I think, think that that's yeah. an and I think that he may have a sense of it, but like sometimes these guys are, you know, like these HBCU jobs, in my opinion, they can't just be like PWIs where you just like, you know, like I got a job at Louisiana Lafayette and then I got a job, you know, like they got to really appreciate the legacy of a particular place. And that place, Tennessee State uh, and John Merritt, they got they got one of the greatest legacies uh, uh, in HBCU history. And they are one of the first programs to play in a predominantly white conference, right? So they they've never played in the MEAC. They've always they've been in the OVC since the early 1970s. So like they've been in a they've been in a in a kind of in the front runner uh, on this issue uh, that we've seen uh, North Carolina A and T go to the Big South and Hampton go to the Big South. A and T did that in the 70s. So. I mean, uh, Tennessee State did that in the '70s, so I yeah, wanted to make sure yeah. we understand that they were one of the first teams to play uh, PWI, right? They played San Diego. It was like a a big thing. I think Eldridge. I think it had to be in his senior year, right? Uh, by the way, that's Eldridge Dickey. By the way, the the Lord's Prayer, um, and that's this also speaks to uh, the kids from Houston, right? And 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 got got away from Houston. It's you know, great stuff, but that's that's. That only comes up. The whole grade thing only comes up post sixty with with the integration. Um, right, got out of Houston, but also got out of Texas Southern. So somehow Merritt was able to, you know, put his paws all the way in Houston, right, <laughs> and, and and beat out like Southern and other schools for like what you know, arguably one of the best high school quarterbacks you know around at, at that time, right. Um, but that's the thing too, like all these guys, you know, when Doug goes to Grambling, if I'm not mistaken, he he had broke all the state records for passing, right? And and he's not even getting a sniff. I think the only sniff he gets out of LSU is like to come play baseball for him, right? So he's breaking <laughs> records by like Terry Bradshaw and and um I forget who else. Like he's 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 up there with them, like mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like and and Eddie puts out you know on this whole black quarterback kick, but he puts out three really good. Black, you know, quarterbacks in a row with uh, James Harris, Matthew Reed, um, and then Doug, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the kind of this tradition that they're in, and that that allows Gravick to stay, you know, on top for a while when you have the best quarterback, literally the best quarterback in the country, right? Um, and and as James Harris says, he's probably the best quarterback, college quarterback ever, 
and we talk about mm-hmm. Doug Williams. Um, but yeah, no, this to me it's going to be interesting. Um, you know, it's 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 good to get attention, and and I think even though I wish, you know, like I said, I wish other other people who who maybe were more qualified had the shot, but right now, you know, I think it's important to build these programs up and to what they were, right? Like these were 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 top flight programs where where NFLs were just picking them. Because you know, if you played at Tennessee State, you played at Southern, you played at at one point at Prairie View at Grambling, you could play. Um, and I think if you can get close to that, I think it's worth it. Well, I think the model is this, right? And I think that one of the things that we've seen this, even this past pandemic year of football, which was uber problematic, as we talked about earlier on the earlier podcast. But I think that when you think about even over the last several seasons, this this group of five teams that have kind of come out of nowhere to really make claims. So Central Florida, for instance, right? Like they've come up and they made themselves they claim they claimed a national title a few years ago because they went undefeated. Right. Um, We saw Coastal Carolina. Uh, do uh, be BYU and the in the number two quarterback in this draft, right? Um, uh, and, and we saw uh, Louisiana Lafayette uh, win a lot of games this year, uh, and so I think that there's a lot of that that level of programs. App State going back to when they beat Michigan a few years ago, right? That those programs' success in many ways should uh, that's the roadmap for HBCUs, in my opinion, right? That the roadmap is not. Um, you know, they ain't going to be Ohio state. The money, the money differential is crazy, right? The money now. and scholarships, right? Well, I mean, not even the, I mean, the scholarship, like if it, if they, you know, the scholarship difference between FCS and, 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 and FBS is, is dramatic, but it's just the money between the bottom half of G group of five, even, and Ohio, like the big 10 get, like you're in a big 10, like my alma mater, Maryland's getting a 50 million, $51 million check, mm. right? Just, just for being in the Big Ten, <laughs> like that's before you do anything else, right? Like, uh, and that's a big, that's a big. That number right there is so astronomically large that it becomes harder and harder for even the Group of Five programs, UCF and FAU, and all those kinds of programs to close the gap. But I think those programs are really the models for how they should build and 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 going forward to be competitive against the North Dakota States, the James Madisons, et cetera. And I think that's what, that's what I like to see. I like to see HBCUs to keep that tradition, but also be extremely competitive at that level. Because as Jackson State led the nation in FCS attendance, right? So, like, the fans are already there. Like, people are showing up for the games uh, at FAMU, at Tennessee State, at Jackson State, at Southern. And so now we just need to the, the, make sure that the quality of the programs from top to bottom uh, uh, matches the kind of interest that black folks have had in these programs for a number of decades. And I think that's, that's what we hope that Eddie George is bringing is, is, is a Tennessee state and can restore them to really being extremely competitive. Right. Boom. What else you got? I think, uh, what we're at 40 minutes. Um, let's do a serious, let's do the serious topic and, uh, let's do LeBron. Okay, and and I and I'll start. And if you don't know, shoot, today is what this like the twenty second. But look, we've been and we talked about this in, in prep, right? It's just been a living like heck, right? Or hell, I don't know what I can say on these airways. Um, but it's just one thing after another, right? Uh, you went from the the Chauvin case, which was like, oh man, like is this guy going to get 
time, right? And and if if you know anything about American history, like you would have said, like no, there's there's no chance, right? I thought like there's no way they there's no way this jury messes this up, right? Like we seeing is knowing, right? And I and I love that because I, I take that from Craig Hodges and he uses that when he talks about Michael Jordan, right? Um, about not saying anything about Rodney King. Like, how could you not say anything? You've seen this, right? You don't have to study this. You've seen this. And I thought that was the key for this case. And then later on, that uh, that young woman, the girl, right, in in Columbus gets shot by the police. And now, and I know how, you know, the tough part is that with the internet, the story, the first story is not the story, right? And things mm-hmm. change. But it's still the fact that she was shot by the police on that day. And LeBron James, who is perhaps one of the most powerful athletes, has the biggest platform for this stuff, right? And if not just uh, the nation, but the world got on. And on the one hand, he what tweeted a picture of the officer who, who shot and killed this young girl, this teenager. And, you know, mm-hmm. you're next. Now, it wasn't a threat. Right, he wasn't coming at them, but just saying he was on LeBron's on this accountability kick. I don't know; it's the best way I can say it. Because mm-hmm. up until I think up until Tuesday, like this word accountability wasn't really floated around from anybody. Right, we've gone from like defund to accountability, 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 and so that's where he was coming from. And then I believe today, this morning, he took down the tweet and said he's angry. He still wants accountability. But my thought is, I wanted to write a piece on it, but like we talk about, we just get busy. But one of my thoughts is he shouldn't have taken that down. Now, maybe not have the officer's picture in it. Maybe people are worried about it, but that's not it. To me, the moment you take it down because it's it said that she had a knife and maybe she was going to hurt this person, and I can't articulate quite the way I want to take articulate it, but the moment you take it down, you're suggesting perhaps that there's a reason or excuse why she should have been killed, right? I'm not saying LeBron believes in that, but that's the narrative, right? And I think mm-hmm. what, what upsets me the most always about these cases is that when we see these young black kids get shot, you have people actively looking for a reason to tell you why they deserve to get shot, right? And I think it falls into that moment, right? Because if we're gonna but but if we're gonna deal with policing. Then we gotta have be able to see moments like this where there are, are people p- with a knife and don't get shot, right? Like there's there's gotta yeah. be like that's the the ultimate goal, like right? You want a police force that knows how to de-escalate a situation for black folks, and American history tells us they don't de-escalate this situation, right? They they mm-hmm. go in guns blazing right this officer came in guns blazing instead of de-escalating the situation so my thing is that's where we need to be right because if we're not there then we're still in that point where you're saying there are some situations where the officer should kill this teenager and we shouldn't be there right we got to move beyond policing because that's that's a major problem right and that's you know uh, the historical stuff this is a historical podcast. I think what LeBron's doing is sitting in the, in the tradition of, I've tweeted this before and I've wrote about it, tradition of Jackie Robinson on police brutality. He's in the tradition of Bill Russell talking about police brutality. He's in a tradition of Joe Lewis who comes to the, uh, you know, 
uh, really comes to Isaac Woodard's uh, side. And now I, that story is being told again, mm-hmm. right, on, on PBS. Like, this is kind of what these top black athletes do. It's only been this kind of small history, right, where I, I think 70s to what, until you get to Craig Hodges, where there's not a lot of talk, right, on mm-hmm. this. But this is the tradition, and this makes sense. And again, I think LeBron had every right to use his platform to shed light on this situation. And I think he should not have taken down that tweet, right? Let's just keep mm-hmm. it up there. Keep everybody on this. There's no fence in this. We're going to keep everybody on, on this side of the conversation. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, I think the question, so I, I was thinking about your point, a couple points here. One is the point about accountability. I feel like we, we ebb and flow in this, right? I think that when, when these cops are brought to trial, there's a lot of return to discussion about accountability, uh, the defund the police as a, as a mantra, um, uh, is something that, uh, has only, uh, come in, I think in the last, I mean, in the academic circles, we probably heard it for much longer than, than the public has heard the slogan. Um, but I, I'm thinking about the Walter Scott shooting back in, in 2015, people were talking about accountability, right? That when, when the, the police officer who shot him, um, what was his name? Uh, I want to make sure I can get his right. Um, uh, let's see. Oh, uh, Slager, I guess, uh, uh, shoots him. He, uh, we, we, you know, when he goes to trial, we're talking about accountability. So I think accountability comes up when we have this thing, right? Because I think one of the things this discussion about accountability is doing is I think it's doing a very important task, right? That they are not equating accountability with justice, right? Like, I think that's the important piece, right? Like, I think that's why they're doing it. Um, but I do think that the discussion of accountability was ramped up with this with the Chauvin case in part because, uh, like you said, we had the video. We saw the nine minutes of of depravity um, that, that this officer displayed in, in really exterminating and, and taking George Floyd's life unnecessarily in that moment. Uh, and I think the one thing about and then that's the first point. And the second point about LeBron is. I think your point about him keeping up the tweet is, is important because I think it speaks to, for us, we've been talking about this, you know, before we even had a podcast, we, me and you chopped this up years ago, thinking about this Trayvon Martin moment, right? That, that like when I was living in Miami at the time, when the Miami Heat donned hoodies, right? And was saying like, look, this is, you know, this is too much, right? That they are showing their support for Trayvon Martin. And we watched, and, and and these athletes were vilified by the police, uh, local media in some cases. Um, you know, they're talking about how you know Trayvon Martin was some ga- but like some gangster because he he was smoke he got a, you know kicked out of school for smoking weed like all this stuff right like this is the thing and 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 so I think LeBron has his career in some ways has been defined. As much by the move to Miami, uh, the, the the Trayvon Martin incident while he was there has really come to define redefine his career in a way. Um, I think from that Trayvon Martin, we can draw a direct line to him building a school in Akron, right? right. Like I think, like I think he's oh. taking on like he's taking on these particular kinds of issues, not you know because he's 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 developed I think a so like like you said like we went a long time where. The, the the best players of the day, their whole job was to 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 sell us products and make money in business and to not raise any kind of controversies, right? Um, 
and 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 he was in some ways um you know belatedly right behind the women in the WNBA right behind other you know behind other athletes who had taken a or, you know a earlier stand um but he was really a leading at, at the moment and i think that like it's crazy to think cuz it's almost a decade ago but it's crazy to think about how popular that Miami that Miami team like I mean like like ESPN had just for the first time created a whole like website just, just for the Miami Heat. Brian <laughs> like, Windhorst was living in Miami. Like he was living the good life. He was, right. He was living the right. good life. He got a whole career out uh, of this. Right? Yeah, man. It, yeah, we won't go there. But I'll say this. I'll say this, not to cut you off. But LeBron, I like he's evolved on this issue, right? Because if you remember, look, so I think if I'm if I'm if I got my dates right, by 2014 they're wearing I can't breathe shirts, right? And it's just I don't want to call it performative because it was a big moment, right? It, it, it had come on the heels of Mike Brown, Eric Gardner, and so players were doing stuff, right? And NBA was kind mm-hmm. of behind. You know, everybody. It was a one-off, though. I believe it was a one-off. I don't think they wore it more than one game. Mm-hmm. And then, but where he he lost a lot of folks to Mir Rice. Mm-hmm. He didn't say anything about it. He gets asked right. about it. And this is when this idea of seeing his knowing comes up. Oh, I've heard about this, but I gotta do. I gotta read up on this, right? And that's that was actually his line uh, this time around. You usually I read up on this, and, and you know you got to know. At that point, though, you didn't have to know. He's a twelve-year-old kid at the park. The cops walk up to him and shoot him two seconds, right? You you should have been there. And and then that's when we start to see the I promise, I think, and stuff like that. And then because he's he was always, I think he always is searching for a way to do stuff and do it safely. Like the voting stuff is powerful. It's safe. You can't argue with that. You're just trying to extend the vote. The school stuff is powerful. It's safe. It's the police brutality stuff where he's like, man, I'm trying to like, I really, you get the sense he really wants to say it, but sometimes he wants, he wants to think about his image first. And I'm just like, you don't have to anymore. Right. But as a country, we're at this place where you just, you go full on cap and you put it out there, let people wrestle with it. Right. And I think he does that sometimes. And then this time he is like, I want to pull it back. But that anger is still there. And I think there's something in him. Like, I think there's whatever he could do because he's a billionaire. He's powerful. He's smart. I think there's another move that he's going, going to make. And I hope it's the right move. I hope it's not like a, whatever, the players coalition and, and then you have this kind of beef with cap and yeah, stuff yeah, like yeah. that. I hope he, he figures something out. It's not a, I hope it's not a Michael Jordan and sorry, MJ, if you're listening, uh, you can send us some shoes though, where he gives a million to the cops and a million to the NAACP. And, yeah. You know, this is what he does. Well, I think he's trying to figure, I think that, that he's realizing that some of these moves are uh, acceptable, right. And that there's no real safe, way to talk about pro- police brutality, right? Like ain't no way to keep your safety in that situation. And um because the police are seen as 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 you know, as I think Howard Bryant, I'm I'm teaching the heritage right now. So folks of our readership, our listenership have not read it, I, I highly recommend it because he he really gets at the way in which we see uh, you know, Colin Kaepernick or the WNBA or even LeBron's uh, statements about these issues, whether it's Walter Scott or, or, or Trayvon Martin or even, you know, uh, you know, uh, George Floyd in the more recent situation as political. But we don't see the flyovers, 
the massive flags on the field, the salute the military. The, they don't see that as political, right? And I think that that's part of the discussion, right? Because the political the the police have have gained a certain kind of 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 protection because their actions are seen their their very existence is seen as uh uh patriotic and supportive like support our you know support the police that's a tough job and da, 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 da. and I'm like you know it's sometimes a tough job right like if we do the statistics like ain't that many people getting like it's a you know and they're in theory it's a tough job but like there are tough like being a lumberjack is probably a tougher job right more people die of that right like um, and so I think that there's a lot of uh, discussions about we we've provided this air. And then I think the other pieces, and this is just to be frank, like, you know, I think we, uh, our colleague Carl, we're going to shout out Carl, who writes about uh, carceral state. Like we talk about this on, on our, in our, in our chats all the time. Like, like, man, the number of shows that, that like constantly highlight the cops doing no wrong. Right. Bad boys, we even like our bad boys. <laughs> like, it's right, the, like bad I love, boys. I right. love me some Will and, and Martin, but man, every some they're brutalized. There's some, police, some police brutality going on in in one, two, and three. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I talk about it all the time. Like I, I, I love the show Justified. It's one of the best shows, the complicated show about the state of Kentucky, right? Like it is, a, you know, like it's about coal, it's about race, it's about all kinds of stuff, right? But the first shot, that the first scene of that boot of that show is him shooting a dude <laughs> like willy nilly, and his right. punishment is like you don't get to stay at the Miami office no more. You get to go <laughs> back to Kentucky. Like, like that. No, there's no prison. There's no nothing. Right. right. Like, just off the force. Right. Like, like it's just like we just got to accept that as a norm. And and if we if we think about the way that that influences our thinking on these issues, man. That's it, It's hard, right? And I think that we're slowly, I mean, the one of the reasons I've always, I've always loved The Wire uh, as a show for my younger listeners on here is that nobody comes out of The Wire looking good. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like everybody's complicated and, and like messed up and compromised. The police, the media, the drug dealers, the people, you know, the social service people, the politicians, everybody, because it's all like it's the closest thing to reality in some ways that we've had in television. Um, and and it's not this anti-hero and hero. It's just it's just a, a full on mess. And and I think that there are people who have some principles and believe in things. And I think that that's why the wire is good. But like it's not like people are like it's propaganda. I'm like it's 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 not like you walk away. The cops are terrible in that movie, right. right? You know, in that show, right? And so I think that there's a there's a sense that that we don't have we've never had enough of that on television in our entire lives to to really do it. And so what that does is it, it, you know kids want to be you know they want to be policemen from the time they're young and they, they watch these shows and all this kind of leads in and feeds into this ethos. So thus that we give them the benefit of the doubt. And I think that's really the big, you talk about the idea, you couldn't explain it. I was like, yo, we are constantly giving folks the benefit of the doubt. And the police give white people, Dylan Roof, who shoots up the entire church, the benefit of the doubt. And that's why black people are frustrated. Like you don't get the benefit of the, like Makia Bryant didn't get the benefit of the doubt. Right, no deal. All we know is she had a knife in her hand. I'm like, dude, I don't see people... 
people with guns and assault rifles and never and get arrested. Right, right. And when we see it, I mean, they. I mean, that's the point people make, right? That the uh, was a written house, you know, killing mm-hmm. <laughs> killing people gets taken in. I mean, we we literally see white folks walking around with guns, like, yeah. And it's just like, yeah, they have a right. Like, it's like, well, they're okay. I mean, dude shoots up Aurora. Uh, in Colorado, he's he's still around, right? And so it's not me saying they they should shoot him up. And what I'm saying is that people, should, you but should be able to see the humanity in these folks in in this moment, right? And that's well, and uh, as that's we talk about like Tamir Rice and and uh, Adam Toledo in Chicago last week, and and Makia Bryant, like all that is just like that. That one of it is that there is a sense. You know, there's a lack of of humanity. See, you know, there's a, they don't visualize the humanity. It reminds me I, I, this semester because I've been actually teaching this semester, uh, unlike somebody on this podcast. Um, yeah, man, I'm <laughs> um, I, I assigned uh, Sylvia Winter's NHI essay, "No Humans Involved," from 1994, where she's talking about the Rodney King riot, and she 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 the 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 takeoff point of that essay. Uh, and I highly recommend folks find uh, Sylvia Winter with the Y uh, essay on uh, No Humans Involved is that the the LAPD ahead of the uh, Rodney King beating uh, had a moniker, right, that they use over the radio. They said that, you know, when they arrested black and brown youth in, in the worst neighborhoods in L.A., they said that it was NHI. And so they felt like because there was no humans involved, they could do whatever. Mm-hmm. They could beat them up dropped them off in enemy territory. They could do all kinds of things because they didn't see these young kids as human. And I think that one of the things that we have to grapple with is that that idea that, that Civil Winter talked about in 94 has not left, whether that is explicit in all these police departments or not. Uh, it's very much implicit. The fact that there was a uh, expose last week in which uh, the uh, people who donated to Rittenhouser's oh, gosh, yeah. his, 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 his money came from police departments right. and they use their, their, they use their, you know, they use their, their government email. That's, that's just <laughs> which, felt safe doing that too. That's great. Right. You know, and they were like, you know, and I think that that speaks a lot that he just showed up. Right. And, and, and so, whereas they, you know, the, the media was calling Makia Bryan, a, a young woman when she was 16 years old, uh, Rittenhouse, they were talking about, he's a kid. Right. You're right. right. So we, we infantilize these, these young white men in particular, uh, but black kids, uh, men and women, boys and girls are, are seen as adults. Um, even though they are are really just children, and that's frustrating. And I think that's the the, the fire that that was in LeBron's belly because his kids are coming of age where right. you know, like they're gonna be driving a fancy car, and they you know they run the risk of being pulled over uh, and something happening. Uh, and that's every parent's. You know, we're both parents. That's our fear, right? I got ten year old and a seven year. Like, like I I'm not looking forward to that day. Right. Right. No, I think no. You're right, and I think he feels that right. I think stuff he sets up is is with with his kids in mind, and 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 I don't think you could separate him being concerned about policing and seeing these young kids who look like his kid, right? Who could be his buddies, his kids' buddies, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I think that's part of it. That's part of the frustration. Um, 
But I think on that note, man, we've hit an hour. It's been like six weeks. We've hit an hour. So, yeah. Are we ready to say peace? Yeah, let's say peace because we right. got to save something for the next the next one we, we got to do. We'll, we'll be more regular. We promise. We'll yes. be more regular. We'll be on our fiber. Peace. <laughs> <laughs> peace. <laughs>